Hey, God for Grown Up listeners, we'd like to invite you to join us for a special series led by Dr. Beatrice Lawrence about death and dying from a Jewish perspective. What do you plan to cover in this series? Well, Dan, I'm going to start actually working through texts in a chronological pattern. So we're going to start in the Bible and look at the experiences of people there dying and the different ideas about the afterlife that occur there. You're looking perplexed. Why would a person want to come to a Lenten series on dying? That sounds really depressing. Oh, I don't know, isn't it just interesting? It's like the weather, it happens to everyone. It's fundamentally a matter of meaning in human life, isn't it? What's going to occur? Yeah, this series will be offered at Queen Anne Lutheran Church. It has five sessions, Wednesdays, March 4th to April 1st. 6 p.m. we start with a simple supper, 6.45 to 7.30 we have our program. There is no cost, all faiths are welcome. So we invite one and all to a conversation that, like the weather, affects everyone. (laughs) Hope to see you there. When I was in high school, we did you have this where you choose a quotation to go beneath your senior picture? Yeah, but I don't remember mine. What was yours? Mine was, you will never come up against something as adversarial as the fulfillment of your own potential. Do you know oh. where I got that? Star Wars? Star Trek. Where did that come from? That's from the next generation. Oh, well, that's because that's not real Star that's Trek. That's not canonical. That's extra canonical. Yeah, psh, that's not that's, real. That's apocrypha. Dear God. It's horrible. It's pseudepigrapha. <laughs> it's derivative it, is what it what? is. That's right. It's not captivating the way the original series was. The original series was new and everything else copied it. Greatest moment in cinematic history. Come Of course. Yes. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dan. I'm B. And this is God for Grownups. And our topic today is soteriology. So keep listening. Soteriology. Everybody just turned is, it off. Okay. <laughs> is the way a person understands salvation. In the Christian tradition, you have Christology, which is who Jesus was, and you then have soteriology, which is, again, in the Christian tradition, how Jesus saves. Broadly speaking, it's a person's doctrine of salvation. My friend and colleague here doesn't quite... No, I like that. I just, when you said Jesus saves, I immediately thought of the joke. What joke is that? Jesus saves, Moses invests. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Controversy, and we're already, we're not even a minute in. (laughs) So... In the Christian tradition, there are a lot of people who think that based on proof texts like John, I think it's John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's a there's a verse in the book of Acts, which is the early history of the Christian church written from a religious point of view, where the apostle Peter says, something to the same effect, that Jesus is the only way, that there is no name under heaven that is is salvific except for the name of Jesus the Christ. So we call this view exclusivist, and the idea is that you're in or you're out. Either you are a Christian who has, in one way or another, accepted Jesus. If you're not, then... Again, according to this view, you go to hell or 
Some will argue that you're annihilated after death. But there are other Christians who don't hold this view. There are other Christians who are more inclusivist, uh, which is to say that, and this is problematic, but at least I think it's a step in the right direction, that, that God in Christ doesn't just embrace a chosen few, but embraces the world. And that's language we find in the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter, chapter 5 that God was reconciling the world to God's self in Christ Jesus, not just this group or this person, but the world. And then there are other Christians who identify, I would say they're, minor, they're a minority, but they identify as pluralists, their conviction being that this is one way God has reached out to humanity, but that there are other valid, legitimate ways. I'm curious, from a Jewish perspective, What's the advantage? What's the buy-in? I mean, I if I buy into Christianity, there are some who will say I'm promised eternal life. Damn. So that's what I get. <laughs> or at the very least, I get, I love this. There's a guy named, uh, uh, who is this? Lloyd Gearing, who in a book called Reimagining God says, going back to the original Greek in the Gospel of John, that when John talks, has Jesus talk about eternal life, he's not talking about a duration of time that continues after we die, but rather, instead of quantity there, he's talking about a quality of life that we can live before we die, and that's a life lived without the fear of death, where the sting of death has been taken away. And wow, that's I would love to be able to live that life, and I would like to think that the that the symbols and resources of my tradition make that kind of life here and there possible. So there's an advantage for me in that regard to being Christian. But what's the advantage for you of being Jewish? Well, Why um, Jewish and not something else? Well, I was born this way. But um, it, it's interesting, as you were talking about salvation, you were talking about theologies of religious pluralism, right? And, and exclusivism, inclusivism, um, pluralism, particularism. I'm a big fan of particularism, um, which actually applies here in that if you're talking about salvation, we, we have to go back to that word because you don't mean the same thing that Jews mean. So then the question is, if we're going to talk about this in a Jewish context, saved from what? And for what? And from what and for what? So when you're talking about uh, Christian approaches to this within the diversity of Christian responses, what are you being saved from? Well, and that's a question I want to make sure you answer as well. Sure. So why don't you, why do you start? You tell me what you're, tell me what you're saved from. Well, in, in Judaism, we don't need to be saved from a fundamental nature. We don't need to be saved from um, afterlife punishment. Um, now, there's radical diversity in Judaism, as there is in Christianity, but so that there are teachings about the afterlife that involve punishment versus reward, but those are not about, not about salvation. Those are about the decisions that you make in your life. Um, salvation is a very problematic word in a Jewish context. Kaplan, oddly enough, has written on it more broadly than other Jewish thinkers that I've come across, Mordechai Kaplan, and he thinks salvation involves... Uh, Structuring our society in such a way that every individual can live up to his, her, their potential. That's his definition of being saved. Um, otherwise, I'm not sure how much commonality we have here, so let's keep teasing it out. So for you, following Kaplan, you would agree that salvation means 
being given the opportunity to live up to your fullest potential in life? I was just sharing that because I thought it was interesting. What I tell my students is that we don't need to be saved from ourselves and we don't need to be saved from an external religious reality that can force us to do something right or wrong. We don't need to be saved. We have what we need to live the way that we're supposed to live. And it's up to us whether or not we do it. From a Christian perspective, I would echo what you say about diversity in the Jewish, in the Jewish faith. The same is true in the Christian, in the Christian tra- tradition. There are uh, two authors, their names are Stone and Duke, and they wrote, a, they wrote an introduction to theology where they talk about at least four options available to Christians when it comes to what we're saved from and what we're saved for. There's saved from ignorance for true knowledge, there is saved from death for eternal life. And that could include, that's the most popular, I would say, that you're saved from from uh, the sufferings of hell, from hellfire and damnation for heaven or, or whatever. So there's for eternal life. There is uh, saved from uh, brokenness for right relationship. And that's uh, Paul Tillich, who is sort of my... Christian version of Kaplan for you, maybe. Paul Tillich will talk about that. But I think even more importantly, recently, there have been a lot of feminist and womanist theologians in the Christian tradition who talk about Jesus, for example. This is uh, a womanist theologian named Dolores Williams. Talk, I think it's her. She talks about Jesus as the bearer of right relations. And I really like that. So you're saved from broken relationship for authentic relationship. Uh, and then there's um, saved from oppression for liberation. And uh, liberation theologians in the Catholic tradition in particular, Central and South America, they, uh, along with feminist and womanist theologians, will also often embrace that, embrace that model. And, and Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, according to Luke, the, the fourth chapter, talks about, he quotes Isaiah and says that I came, uh, what is it, that I came to liberate the captives? Mm-hmm. So... Those are at least four options that we have in the Christian tradition, but the most prevalent is the second. Some of that was, this is going to sound like a stupid comment, but I am always straight up with you about, I'm not a theologian. Some of that's pretty abstract. So that's a conversation about salvation that, um, that the language is beautiful and the concepts are interesting, but people in the pews might wonder how to embody it in their lives. Possibly, but I, I, it is. It's a second order reflection on first order experience, mm-hmm. but I think it's a fair inventory of mm-hmm. what we see in the history of at least the Christian theological tradition. It's interesting. It is abstract. You're right. I don't know if, if too abstract. I guess I would. No, there's no too. I was just noticing. I, I think I, and it's not language that we hear often. That's the thing. That's what, because when you, when, when we were talking about this before we started and, and when, when we began talking about soteriology, I immediately went to 99% of the interactions I have had with my Christian loved ones about salvation has been about death to life. That's right. Has, and so to hear these other, uh, elements of salvation. It's fascinating to me. It's just stuff I haven't, it, it requires sitting and reflecting on it and learning more about it to really interact with it. I, I think that when, I, when we talk about these various, let's say, models, soteriological models, I think that I often think of Christianity or maybe, I don't know, I don't know if you think this is true about Judaism, but there are certain species in Christianity that go extinct. And so when it comes to Jesus, for example, as the, uh, as the harbinger, or not harbinger, but bearer of 
of true knowledge, which was a somewhat prevalent view in the in the second and third centuries, and which we find in Pelagius, uh, who argues that Jesus is the example that people are given to follow, that uh, he gives them, uh, I guess you could say, correct uh, moral knowledge, assuming that the problem is one of ignorance, how to live yeah. the right way. So, and I would say there are a lot of, especially liberal or progressive Christians who who would agree with Pelagius that, sure. and maybe the Jewish tradition that it's not about some kind of corrupted human nature from which we need liberation. That's really... For some, at least, that's the, the third model I was talking about, that we are inherently broken, that we are inherently flawed, that we are inherently, Luther follows St. Augustine, he uses this phrase, curvatus in se, that mm-hmm. we are turned in on ourselves, curved in on ourselves, and that God gives us the grace that opens us up. The way, you know, when you touch a roly-poly or a pill bug? And it rolls up. And it rolls up. The course of life is being opened progressively more and more such that by the end when death consummates and completes the process we are hopefully more open to god and more open to our neighbor than we would be before i don't think there is any kind of progression that way i i think the compulsions and so forth they they continue with us till we die but so in judaism there's a strangely positive theological anthropology and i like to say strangely positive because in light of jewish history one would understand if the view of human nature were more negative than it is and that's what anthropology could you define anthropology for our listeners oh and i just borrowed these terms from my theologian friends so this is um sort of an exploration of human nature um vis-a-vis how humans were created is that not right? Can you do a better right. job? Is I that all right? It's it's one's assessment of the human condition. Of the human condition. Yeah, of human nature. It's relatively positive if in Judaism that thing. we we have been created the way we were supposed to be created, and that um, we have what we need internally to live the right way, and that we are capable of creating the world that um, that we want, that we get in our own way on in our own ways. However. Um, as you're talking about that, there are other things that keep popping up in my head that I realize uh, don't follow. Uh, I'm not, I can't apply the term soteriology. Number one, I'm not a theologian. Number two, I don't even know if even someone like Heschel ever employed, uh, uh, used that term to describe this. I mean, I think it might be a Christian category of theological examination, but there is the teaching that, f- that performing the commandments changes you. That when you, when you commit one sin, it leads to another sin. But when you fulfill one commandment, it leads to another commandment. And that over time, fulfilling these commandments actually changes your very heart. So there is some kind of progress, there even is. if there isn't an, an original fall. There is some that's, kind of progress. That's the thing. So let's say that you, um, you know, once a year, Jews are supposed to give 10% um, to very, you know, to charity, to feed the hunger, to help the homeless, to, and there are many options about where you can give that. But, um, in this case, Maimonides said, if you give what you're supposed to give, but you're grouchy about it, you have still fulfilled your obligation. However, Maimonides continues, and actually other traditional sources say, even though you felt grouchy about it, if you keep giving it every year, it's actually going to start to change you internally, and you're actually going to become more generous and more compassionate as a result. So in that way, um, there is a process of changing the self for the better. There's also um, a Hasidic idea that the world needs a little help. 
Um, and God sends 36 righteous souls into every generation to bring some Torah and some light into the world that apparently we need. So there's a there's another element that I thought of in relation to the idea of uh, divine involvement. There's a cosmic element, right? Like in Lurianic yeah. Kabbalism, where your 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 life's purpose is to help liberate the sparks of creation that were embedded in the physical yeah. creation of the, the world. The end result is annihilation, but yeah, annihilation of everything that isn't God, which is everything. Sure. So so God is all in all. Yeah. That's what Paul teaches. Yeah. In his letter to the first letter to the Corinthians, I have three questions, two or three questions. Which you will a, B, remember because you're good at. I am, except I'm I'm already forgetting them. But I guess the first question would be, given that at least Maimonides talks about becoming better by doing righteous deeds. He's not the only one. He's not the only one. Well, that sort of to me suggests that there is there is something wrong with us. That, again, as one of my professors used to say, uh, the world is broken and we can't fix it. But there's, there is, it's almost like a, a delicate, light, implied version of the fall. That things aren't the way they should be. Right. So we can improve based upon, and this is my second point, something that sounds a lot like what Aristotle taught which is practice in terms of virtue makes perfect. The more I perform a good deed, particularly the younger I am, the more inclined I am to do that good deed older because of practicing virtue. And that's what Pelagius teaches in the Christian tradition as well. Christ is the example. Practice makes perfect. So I guess not three, but two points. I'm curious how you would respond to to both. An implied fall or at least... And then the other being how we get to, how we become better. So not a fall, but the idea is that the world is broken and we can fix it. That, to use your language. Why is the world broken in the first place? So many different teachings about that. But we can fix it. Can you give me an example of one or two? Of a teaching about why the world is broken? It's intentional. That we are to be co-creators. That brokenness is an element of the creation. That God actually, um, as you know, broke God's self in the process of creation. My favorite is is uh, a teaching that says we're not supposed to ask ask why things are the way they are. They just are the way they are, and we can fix it, and we're supposed to fix it. Here are the tools for fixing it. All right, here's the commandment. Here are the six hundred thirty commandments. Here's the Torah. Here it's here's it, it, its interpretations. Take this wisdom, go with it, live it, and you will start to make a difference in the world. That's the concept of tikkun olam, or healing the world, right, or even healing the universe. So, um, so it's not so much an implied fall as it is an acceptance of the nature of the world as in need of repair. How is that? That's fascinating. I think it it reminds me of a a group of Christians in the late 19th and early 20th century who felt it to be their task to bring about the kingdom of God. Interesting. And that this is done through, through, uh, I would say through institutions and it's done through uh, the temperance movement, for example, was born from the born of the social gospel movement. Uh, One of its leading theologians, or at least a theologian, in the school was a man named Edgar Brightman who influenced Martin Luther King. So it's there. I mean, King himself will talk about a moral arc of the universe and, and 
That's right, and that we play a, an important role in that. Now, I think theologians, Christian theologians, are probably going to want to be more careful here and, and their, in their view be more careful and say, well, it's not ultimately us who fix the world, it's us empowered by God. When I was up for my candidacy as a pastor, I was, you're interviewed. You have a series of interviews with the, with the candidacy committee that includes the bishop in this case, and it includes, uh, it included another pastor and then uh, uh, a number of lay people. And I remember talking about this and the only, the only issue the bishop raised, and then in, in fact, the only issue that was raised was that I was talking about living this morally upright life. And he, and I, and I kept saying, we, we, and he goes, we, we can do this. And I realized, oh my gosh. Yeah. Theologically orthodox orthodoxy requires a little qualification there and it's empowered by the spirit. Hmm. Or like Paul says in Philippians four, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So I think that qualification is going to be attached there often. And that's a that may well differentiate the Christian tradition from the Jewish. I don't know. Well, uh, the way that we can fix things um, is in part, at least through a covenant that was given to us by God. We did not create the covenant. God created the covenant, but God gave it to us. It's ours now. And we fulfill these, these commandments. We fulfill these obligations. Um, it's the covenant then that is the ultimate act of grace in the, in, Jewish, in the Jewish view of history. And that will allow for salvation. In that way, God is built into it. But I understand, I understand what you're saying. Um, a certain humility is also expected behind it. it. It reminds me of Moses getting in trouble when he hit the rock with a stick and said, Listen up, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water from the rock? And then he was denied the right to enter the promised land. Interpreters later wrote, it's because he said, we, when he was doing nothing to get the water out of the rock. And it was all God. So I do, I keep thinking of, as you're talking about this, though, I keep thinking about Jewish teachings about the coming of the Messiah. Um, I think this shows to one extent how categories in Christian theological thought are messy when they are applied to Judaism, because you can't talk about sot soteriology without talking about teleology, all of that. But it reminds me of this because... And define teleology? What is that? Um, you're the theologian. Can you say it? Well, I can, just for the benefit of our yeah. listeners. Teleology comes from the, the Greek word uh, for telos, or the Greek word telos, which means that which has an aim or a goal. I think it originated in the, the archer shooting at a, at a target. The arrow and the archer have a goal there. So a teleological view of history would be that history is going somewhere. In this case, it has to do with the coming of the Messiah. Now, the fact that there's the belief that a Messiah will come and for once and for all put an end to war and those sorts of things means there would be an idealized form of life here on earth that we would not have created. All right. Um, most Contemporary forms of Judaism have given up on the idea that Messiah will come. Uh, and it's really only in orthodoxy and specifically ultra-orthodoxy that you find people um, that still look to that day, hopefully. Um, there would have been some really good times in history for the Messiah to show up if he was going to show up, or she. And it hasn't happened. So most talk about a messianic age. However, there's a teaching that you cannot rush the coming of the Messiah. Yeah. 
And if, and, and yet there's also a teaching that the better we get, the more perfect we make the world, then the Messiah will come. There's another teaching that it has to get worse and worse and worse before the Messiah can come. But I see a tension there between what humans can do in healing the world and what they can't do versus what God is going to have to do to create a, a perfect existence. What do you, where does Franz Kafka sit with all this when he says that the Messiah will come the day after he's no longer, or she is no longer needed? That's a view of the messianic age, is that it? we're going to get things fixed and then the Messiah will come and we'll be like, cool, we got it. Sorry. <laughs> There's actually a great teaching, though, about, I think, the thing, how you're supposed to live in the coming of the Messiah. And it tells the story of a man who's planting trees. And... His family rushes out of the house and says, the Messiah is here. The Messiah is here. And the man says, okay, I'll be there in a minute. And he finishes planting the tree. Then he goes to greet the Messiah. There's a, a story attributed to Martin Luther. I don't know if Luther actually said it, but the, the story goes that Luther was asked, uh, what would you do if the Messiah showed up tomorrow? He says, I'd plant a tree today. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, and I think, I think, uh, in the in the Christian tradition, there are some. I would say, I would say they're a minority, but they're 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 an increasingly vocal and really important minority, and I would include myself among them who who argue that it is our profound responsibility to care for the creation that God has given us. But we appeal to the Hebrew Bible and to the the first or second chapter of Genesis, where Adam is given the the responsibility of tending the garden, right? Yeah, he's a farmer. He's a farmer. God says I have to make a farmer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But so, I mean, there, there are certain ways that these folks will appeal to, to Scripture. And I think there's a lot of validity to, validity to this, that we are, we are given a kind of responsibility, that we are co-creators with God. And our task is to care for the creation that uh, I wouldn't say that is ours. I don't like that. But care for God's creation. God even says in Leviticus uh, 25, you are strangers on this earth. Mm. This, I, you don't own this. This is mine. I'm letting you use it. If you use it the wrong way, you're out. But did you say it's a minority that feel that yeah, way? Yeah, I think the majority are, are, are people who think that uh, the world is something that like plastic or styrofoam is disposable. And it, it ultimately doesn't matter because... We're going to heaven. Oh, dear God. Yeah. Sorry. That's a view that apparently James James Watts, the in Secretary of the Interior under the Reagan administration, says, why should we care about the environment? Jesus will return soon. And I think what that does is it hastens the destructive end. Oh, yes. And so I I side with, with Christians and, and other faith traditions and people of goodwill who feel like it's our responsibility, whether it comes from God or not, to at least imagine another possibility for this world and try to work for it yeah and and so and i think that the 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 book of revelation the last book in the the christian scriptures doesn't say that when we die we go to heaven it says at the end god will make god's home among mortals right god's tabernacle right will tabernacle among mortals heaven comes to us as it were and i i find myself I read that document and I think this is a profoundly Jewish document that we have in our scriptures. I mean, our, the Gospel of Luke is a Gentile document, but the book of Revelation is a Jewish document because of the way that it talks about the end. Except for the idea that God is entirely imminent. 
Well, yeah, I mean, the image it uses is God will make God's home among mortals right. eschatologically, you know, at the, at the end of days, right. but not historically otherwise. Interesting. Yeah, the, the trouble I have with, with Revelation is that this finality is, is uh, prefaced by mm -hmm. God's just violent uh, destruction, hyperbolic destruction of this world. I mean... It, you can't take it literally because God destroys the earth repeatedly right. uh, through God's angels. So, we, You know, in a, from a Jewish perspective, we are very capable of destroying ourselves, but we're also capable of saving ourselves. And I don't know whether or not that's something that brings people comfort. And from a Christian perspective, I would, I would certainly agree that we are, based upon, say, a view of human nature as broken, we are not only capable of, but we... We are oriented toward destruction, both of ourselves and others and this world. But, and then the, the caveat would be typically, thanks be to God, mm -hmm. we, we have received a kind of healing grace that transforms us and, and, and empowers us to work for the good instead of the, instead of the bad. So you're not, not supposed to sit in despair about it. Right, yeah, but it's, it's a hopeful, it's a hope predicated on the presence of grace in, with, through, and under our lives. Some hmm. some Christian theologians will talk about grace in kind of a mystical sense, or like Saint Augustine, that grace is a kind of mystical power. I would say there there are a fair number of liberal Christians today who see see it don't see it that way. Who who tend to see Jesus again as a a good teacher, a moral teacher, um, a teacher of ethics, whatever, and and that we do have the capacity to to follow Jesus, and that we are called to work for a better world. And we don't need to rely on grace as some kind of mystical power that heals us, but but our nature is not fundamentally broken. I think there are a fair number of Christians who believe that. It's interesting. Yeah. Wow. For myself, I definitely believe that, well, I would say I believe that there is something of God in the power of healing in this world, and that as a Christian, I call that power of healing grace, and that grace is the power that that God bestows that enables me to live the kind of way that God intended, which is for others. But and I think feminist theologians have been right to 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 correct this, but not at the expense of myself, but yeah. rather as the fullest expression of of what it means to live a healthy life, a grace-centered life. I have found that in, on days at, when I've been at very, very dark points in the sheer capacity to survive another day. Wow. The fact that I got up and I lived through the day and did the same thing the next day, that was miraculous. I love those words, sheer capacity to live another day. Yeah. There have been times when that's been... All I could do, and it's amazing that it was possible. Do you think that meets the criterion of our last of our last podcast episode, where you talked about the God talk in the in the midst of children who are dying in the Holocaust or who are remember that that standard yeah. that we were talking about? Well, one of the um, one of the difficulties with the idea, and I'll just quote it again, that Yitzhak Greenberg wrote, that no statement theological or, uh, or otherwise should be made after the Holocaust that could not be made in the presence of burning children. Um, 
and something that people often point out, and actually an element of the conversation around the word Holocaust versus the word Shoah, is that there were survivors. There were survivors from that event. And so um, a Holocaust is a such Holocaust is complete no destruction, survivors, and Shoah is a whirlwind that like went all through Europe and swept everyone up. But there were survivors, and one cannot deny the reality of the survival any more than one denies the reality of the loss. It's powerful. Wow. Yeah, I think you know, and as we 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 come to the end of another episode, I think that I think that Holocausts or Shoahs are Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, a mid-century Christian ethicist and theologian, said that the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith is the doctrine of sin. These kinds of episodes in, in, in every chapter of human history confirm that there is something wrong with us, that we are broken, and that, that we need the, the help of God to, to circumvent and avoid these, these kinds of atrocities. And I don't know, I think in this conversation, maybe one of the big differences between your tradition and mine is the degree to which something is wrong with us. You know, I mean, the fact that human beings are capable of trying to, to obliterate, going all the way back to the book of Esther, an entire group of human beings, is to me unfathomably uh, wrong, horrific. And that we're capable of that. And yet, in your tradition, we are also capable of all the good. Right? It is, yeah. Equally. Yes. And of course, there are diverse views about why such evil happens and how evil individuals can be. And of course, in Judaism, there's the idea that you can cross over a moral line and never return. And you have now lost your right to live. Wow. Um, and murder is one of those things. Wow. And so it's not like, woo, everybody can be okay. It's... Um, it's more about the capacity, but you raise a very good point. I think one of the miracles that people discuss is that history didn't end there for the Jews. Mm -hmm. And it didn't end the countless times before when it was a possibility. And maybe that's, maybe there's an element of grace in that. Maybe. I mean, this conversation either teaches or confirms in my own mind that, that ultimately we need to be saved from ourselves. And that as we face now the sixth extinction, the question will be whether it's whether it's a holocaust of the race or Shoah, whether it's a whirlwind and, and whether there will be some of us who survive. And I always, I love what you say about, about this, your line about, you don't know if human beings will be around in 500 years, but if they are, <laughs> there will be Jews among them. I can't uh, believe you just I said just that. love that. I think it's such a powerful testimony to your, your religious tradition. We'll see. Well, uh, on that note, uh, we have now covered the doctrine of soteriology, at least in a preliminary way, and uh, we'll look forward to our next topic. Everybody take care.